celebrate July 4th, we have a show about Jews across America. And when I think of America, I think of America. America. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this has been your obscenity warning. I think for the 4th of July episode, which this is, we should come up with... with American names. American yeah. names. Hi. Hi, I'm Mark Opportunity. I'm Mark Brockwell. <laughs> oh, I thought you just meant a really, uh, like, yeah. Anglo name. I'm Mark Brockwell. Joined here by Stephanie. Do it. I dare you. By Stephanie Buick. <laughs> and Lon Lockwood. Lon, Lon Lockwood. For the 4th of July, we are taking you across the United States of America. This is our Jews Across America episode. We've been talking about it for a while. We thought that for this country that, that we love, that we love in a in a complicated but profound and ultimately passionate way, that we would take you across the United States. And our producer, Shira Telushkin, had, had an idea. And we, we thought we'd pull her into the studio right now to tell us about this idea. What are we, what are we doing for this episode, Shira? So when we were looking at the calendar a couple months ago, we were looking at July 4th. And one of the things that Josh and I and all of us were thinking about was when you say that you're a Jew from America or what it means to be Jewish in America, it means a thousand and eight different things. So I wanted us to get out there and talk to a bunch of different people and see what it means for them when they say that they're a Jew living in America, because that's a really different experience. From sea to shining sea. Coast to coast. And I'll say that like the idea was, was both geographical diversity, right? So who are people living in places we don't think of as Jewish, but also just like we... Sephardic Jews, different types of ideological Jewish communities, different, you know, ethnic heritages or whatever. Awesome. Okay. Now, now, to kick us off, we you thought that maybe you would quiz us on just how much we know. Right. So I thought it'd be sort of fun for News of the Jews to get a little historical. Um, basically, like Jewish history in America is kind of crazy, right? So in 1750, there's only 300 Jews or about 60 families in all of New York. In, 800, in 1800, there was eight synagogues in the entire country. And then we get by the end of the 1800s is when we have like the huge Jewish community explosions. The Jews come. Yeah, Just hundreds of thousands of people. All of a sudden we're lousy with them. All right, so embarrass so, us with some all right, so let's, questions okay, that let's, we would never, ever get right. So, okay, so first we're just going to start with the basics. You guys get some softballs. What's the oldest congregation in the U.S. and where are they currently located? The Portuguese uh, Spanish synagogue on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Rabbi Mayor Soloveitchik. What, what street? Oh, come on now. So they were, so Sharat Israel was established in 1654 and they're now on 70th and Central Park West. All right. So before we get out of New York, which important New York building was built over the ruins of a kosher slaughterhouse? I actually told this to Liel, so he's out for this round. I, 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 Can I you don't give me remember. A, a, Madison Square Garden, B, the United Nations, C, the Empire State Building, or D, the Metropolitan Museum of Art? Madison Square Garden. I don't remember what you told me. I'm going to go UN. <laughs> uh, I'll go UN also. The United Nations built yes. over a Why kosher I... slaughterhouse, mm. which felt very symbolic. Yeah, that's symbolic. Right? We're like, obliterate your particularity and with our... over Israel. Oh, no. Right. no, it's more like, oh, we're all about peace, like on this site of like murdering animals. I don't know. That's how you read it, Slash, Talishkin. Yeah, all right, what Jews. else in you 19, got for us? In 1935, Newsweek declared this sport to be one, quote, at which Jews particularly excel. Football. Baseball. Boxing. Basketball. Oh. The, the 1934 NYU City College final playoffs, which were a huge deal. Um, in basketball, te- uh, nine of the ten starters were Jewish. It was the Jewish sport. So this this has an America and Upper West Side and Southern Jewish tie-in. Um, for whom is the Israeli city of Netanya named? I'll say this one out because you did tell me the answer to that. Um, All right. Tanya Harding. <laughs> <laughs> for Tanya Harding. Not Tanya Harding. Not Tanya. 
my god. That's all I got. Can I just say from now on, if it wasn't named after her, we're gonna write a letter. <laughs> Tanya. Natanya, listen, man. All right. No, um, that would be amazing. Is Tanya Harding Jewish? No. Can we find no, out no, no okay. figure skater Absolutely ever was Jewish. That's not true. All right. And also, Sasha Cohen. Also, Sasha yeah. Baron Cohen's Russian, a figure skater. Russian Jews. Um, okay. okay. So the city of Natanya is named for Nathan Strauss, who along with his brother Isidore Strauss became the co-owners of Macy's. I'm really into them. Oh my god! Okay, wait. I've let me about let that. me finish and let's talk about this. Yeah. Became right. So they like huge baked good uh, dried goods store yeah. like Macy's. So they became the co-owners of Macy's in 1896. The brothers grew up in Georgia. They came from Bavaria, moved to the South. After the Civil War, they moved to New York. Now Isidore and his wife Ida are sort of famous because they died on the Titanic, Titanic together right. after Ida refused to accept a spot in a lifeboat and chose to die with her husband. Right. So in the movie, when you have that shot of that old couple in the bed, it's it's uh, Isidore and Ida Strauss. Whoa. There's a park named after them on mm-hmm. 107th and West End and lots of schools. And his brother, Nathan Strauss, is uh, what the city of Natanya is named after. That I didn't know. Mark, do you get free clothes? No, but I have told you, right, that I get the Strauss Family Historical Society newsletter, which is like your seventh cousin twice removed. Is rich. Uh, is, <laughs> <laughs> Right, people, money that will never find its people way to you. People whose wills exist. you're not in. Well, no, no, no. What's sad about the historical society letters of an old, 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 old family is now it's like little Jacob Strauss Krieger graduated fourth in his class at Newton South. It's like the most banal. Like it's All we're right. just boring Americans now. Um, Mark, can I do mine yeah. for them? Can um, I ask them? Yeah, yeah. Do okay. you have it? I, so I have one for you guys. Right, which of the following coffee chains was not founded by a Jew? Starbucks, Pete's, Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf, Dunkin' Donuts. Okay, I know Starbucks and Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf are definitely founded by Jews. Coffee no. Bean and Tea Leaf is the one that's in Israel, right? I'm going to go Starbucks. I don't think the original founder was Jewish. No, they were. I think Howard Schultz took over from... No, your the, answer founders, Starbucks? the founders no, were no. Jewish. Well, she's now... Got well, I mean, there. I like... Okay. Okay, I'm going to go Dunkin' Donuts. Although that's probably wrong. I gotta Stuff. go... Then what's, what's left? Pete's Coffee? Pete's. Okay, yeah, who wins? So, in fact, you win. Pete's was founded by the uh, Dutch-American uh, coffee roaster, Johannes, what was it? I sent you the name. Do you have it there? Um, Alfred Pete. Alfred Pete. <laughs> now, Starbucks was founded by three people, one of whom was like Zvika Kriegel or something. Zev, the other two, Zev Siegel. Zev Siegel. The other two, I'm not sure about. Dunkin' Donuts founded in Canton, Massachusetts in like in like Goetia Eastern Mass. The Heartland. The Heartland. William Rosenberg was the founder of Dunkin' Donuts. I thought that Pete's Coffee was founded by Amanda Pete, who is also Jewish. <laughs> also Jewish. No, Pete <laughs> Rosenberg. That great the great children's book. We'll just keep All right, counting. One, we got time for one more, Shira. Um, what you got so for us? So let's, yeah. So let's just do, we'll just do these quickly. These are just like, guess that Jew names. Okay. Um, all right, so- Eric Weiss, son of Hungarian immigrant. Oh, Houdini. Beautiful. Um, I did not know that. So wait, we're guessing oh, people's, yeah. what they changed their name to. Yeah, yeah. yeah Okay. Yeah. And he's Erich Weiss. Erich Weiss. And Weiss. His, wait, his dad was a rabbi in what state? Houdini's- New York. Massachusetts. Pennsylvania. Wisconsin. Nice, Ooh. nice. Um, all right, let's do another easy one, just for people who don't know their history. Alan Stewart Cornsberg. Woody Allen. Woody Allen. Um, what was Lauren Bacall's original name? Oh, I think I actually did know Chava this one. <laughs> <laughs> like was there a Horowitz in there? Betty Joan Persky. Betty Joan Persky. Amazing. Um, all right, so let's end off. This is always my fave. This is the one I sent out to Slack, so off you guys if you know it. Alyssa Zinineva Rosenbaum became what famous writer? I love this one so much because I didn't know it until you sent it. I have no the, idea. The hint is it's Paul Ryan's dream date. Oh, there we go. Ayn Rand. 
Ayn Rand. It's what Ayn every <laughs> like weird boy tells Ayn you is his favorite. Born Alyssa Rosenberg. Rosenbaum. Rosenbaum. But, yes. That's amazing. Sure, <laughs> All right, guys. Happy July 4th. Thank you. Thank you for curating this episode of Jews Across America. I'm here with Stuart Rockoff. He's the executive director of the Mississippi Humanities Council, and he spent more than 11 years as director of history at the Institute of Southern Jewish Life in Jackson, Mississippi. There, he was responsible for creating this amazing resource, the Encyclopedia of Southern Jewish Communities. And he's he's from Texas, but now he's now he's over in Mississippi. Welcome, Stuart. Thanks so much, Stephanie. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, so I'm a little bit obsessed with with Jews of the South. I am from New York. I went to college in Durham and sort of became a little bit obsessed with the Jewish history there. Like, what's your favorite town, your favorite pocket of of Jewish life, either now or historically? Like, what's your favorite story? Oh, my gosh. There's so many great stories. Um, I'll take one from North Carolina, um, you know, because there's this assumption that Jews in the South must have you know, kind of hidden away, um, you know, in, you know, sort of in their basements and not been public about it, when in fact, when you go back and you look at when Jews settle in the South um, and they build synagogues, these are big public events. They draw big crowds. They draw elected officials. And one of my favorite examples, in fact, comes from North Carolina. And uh, it was a small town where Jews had settled there and uh, they were trying to build a synagogue. And they actually sent out a fundraising letter to Jews in other towns sort of around that part of the South saying that, listen, you need to help us. We need to have a synagogue in order to be accepted in the community. We need to have a proper house of worship. Um, So, you know, so then for them, building a synagogue was a way of assimilating into the culture of the town in which everybody goes to church, in which faith is very important. So, you know, I use that kind of example to show how Jews, you know, fit themselves into the cultures of the South. The best thing about this this encyclopedia is basically you click on a state and then it brings down like a drop menu of all of these these different communities. And so you can really, really, really go very, very deep on, you know, I'm going to see what I have open right now. Oh, I have Galveston open. I've, I have oh, Memphis, sure. I have Chickasha, Oklahoma open. Chickasha. Chickasha. Oh my God. This, I'm showing my Northern arrogance. Yeah. I've been to all those places. So, um, so as I did the research, um, you know, I would visit most of these communities and, uh, I had a few tricks. So the first thing, um, I would do is I would go into a cemetery. Well, I'd find the Jewish cemetery and I'd write down names because one of the hard things is our census never collected who was Jewish and who wasn't. Um, So you had to kind of try to estimate or guess, but if someone's buried in a Jewish cemetery, um, chances are they're Jewish. And so I would then take those names to the library um, and go through old city directories and go through old newspapers and, you know, kind of piece by piece kind of put together a history of that community. And if there's still Jews there, I would meet with them. Um, If there was still a synagogue, I would go and dig through closets and find whatever information 
information I could to tell that story. One of the challenges I found, Stephanie, was that so many of these communities had very similar stories. So I was trying to find what is unique about this, you know, this place, say like Chickasha, or what is unique about, say, Laredo, Texas. That one's actually very unique because it's on the border. Um, but, you know, one of the challenges was to write the stories of each communities and do it in a way that, you know, wasn't sort of, you know, kind of repetitive. You know, Jews arrived, they opened stores, they built, a, you know, a synagogue, they assimilated, et cetera, et cetera. So you definitely saw patterns. I mean, one of those patterns seems to be like the dry goods store. Right. Why were, I mean, were Jews were really were merchants. And could you tell, like, was it, why was it that a Jew would come to it, like the Jewish community would come in or Jewish merchants would come in and then just like open a, a dry goods store? Sure. So, um, so there is an old joke, um, which that no town ever had a first Jew because that Jew always had a cousin who was there first. Um, so, you know, Jews um, arrive in the South in significant numbers beginning in sort of the mid 19th century. And, you know, they're coming from Europe. Um, they are, for the most part, working as peddlers initially and um, very much created um, Jewish ethnic networks, economic networks. So in this part of the South, in the Deep South, um, oftentimes New Orleans was the hub. So so um, sort of newly arrived immigrants would work, would arrive in New Orleans. Perhaps they would be outfitted with their first pack of merchandise from a Jewish wholesaler, and then they would start traveling, walking, um, or riding horse if they were successful. Um, up the river into these small towns. And the great thing about being a peddler is you could scout. So if you arrived in a place and noticed that there was a store for sale or there was a lack of stores, then you could use those same relationships with the wholesalers in New Orleans and other Jews in other places to establish a business. And so, you know, you had that's kind of the universal story of Jews in the South is they arrive in towns and they establish businesses. So one of my other tricks, so when I researched, is I would look in the newspaper around the time of the high holidays and I would look for the ads. And the ads would say, uh, so-and-so store will be closed on Thursday for a religious holiday. That was another indicator that this was a Jewish-owned store. It was very interesting because sometimes it would say, our store will be closed on Saturday, September 22nd for a Jewish holiday, which told me they closed for Rosh Hashanah, but they were usually open on Saturdays for the Sabbath. So again, it shows how Jewish religious practice evolved and changed in the South to fit those circumstances. I'm curious about the way these Jewish communities were forming alongside, I imagine, very, very, very long, you know, these, these deep Christian traditions. And is there a way in which Southern Judaism just looks different because it was so enmeshed with this, this, this like larger Christian culture? You know, um, over time, yeah. I mean, initially you had, um, you know, Jews who arrived in the South in the mid-19th century were what we would call sort of traditional or Orthodox Jews. Um, um, even here in Jackson, they employed a shochet. Um, so, so having kosher meat was important. That didn't last all too long, one, because it could be hard to get a shochet. It could be hard to get kosher meat. And as I said, if you're in retail trade, especially in the southern towns, Saturday was the big day for business. Saturday was the day that the farmers um, in the surrounding areas would come to town to buy their stuff. So if you were not going to be open on Saturday, you were not going to be open for very long. So that was a kind of a quick adjustment. So, so when Reform Judaism kind of gets established in the United States in the late 19th century, they find especially fertile soil in the South. And so at a time um, 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 here in Mississippi, by the early 20th century, most, I think, 
about three quarters of the congregations here were affiliated with the reform movement. And even today, um, a, a Southern Jewish congregation is twice as likely to be reform as a congregation in another part of the country. And I think that had to do with, um, you know, kind of fitting in, it had to do with, you know, the difficulties of finding kosher meat, the, the, impracticality for many of maintaining an Orthodox Sabbath when you were in commercial business. And so all of that fed into the um, uh, prominence of Reform Judaism. And they were cultivated. So, you know, Isaac Mayer Wise shows up at a lot of these synagogue dedications. So, you know, for him, he noticed that, that the South was um, was fertile soil and he cultivated it. But there are some Orthodox communities in the South, right? Like I know a lot of the one people know often is Memphis. But are there? Yeah, Memphis are there... is really interesting, right? So, so certainly in the larger cities, um, you absolutely have Orthodox congregations. Memphis is unusual because it has a very large Orthodox congregation. Um, it's called Baron Hirsch. They, they, you know, self declare as the largest Orthodox congregation in America. I haven't been able to verify that, but it's about 500 families. Um, uh, so, you know, it is very significant. That's kind of an outlier. I mean, oftentimes um, the Orthodox congregations, especially in the smaller communities, um, uh, um, you know, eventually moved away. Some became conservative um, and so on. One of the very cool things on the encyclopedia is this list of Southern Jewish mayors. Ah, uh, yeah. And I was surprised to see that like Montgomery had a Jewish mayor in 1887. Like Jews right. were, were, were they able to rise to positions of political power? So in these small towns back in the 19th century and even really today, who are, what class of people get involved in local politics? It's local civic leaders. It's local business leaders. It's the downtown chamber of commerce folks. So Jews as business owners uh, got very in involved in these civic organizations. They got very involved in sort of local leadership projects. And so for many that flowed into um, 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 into politics, into being elected mayor. Um, even today, we have a Jewish mayor in Rolling Fork, Mississippi, and a Jewish mayor in Indianola, Mississippi. Um, and let me just tell you that you can count the Jewish population of those towns on my fingers. Um, and yet, you know, um, they these are respected local business people. They've been in the community a long time. And so that's sort of a long tradition of that. One of my favorite examples is actually from Rolling Fork. There's a man named Sam Rosenthal, who was mayor of Rolling Fork from the mid-1920s to 1969. It's about wow. 45 years as mayor. And granted, being mayor of Rolling Fork, Mississippi is not the same as being mayor of, say, New York City. It's not a full-time job. Um, but uh, um, he was a very, very important leader in that small town. And think about the social changes that take place in a place like Mississippi, a place like Mississippi Delta, between the 1920s and the late 1960s. So he you know, was there during a time of tremendous change. And even before that, I, something that really was amazing to me. So Little Rock had a Jewish mayor named Jonas Levy from 1860 to 1864. So during the Civil War. So can you tell us a little bit about what was going on? Like, I think people, when we think about the Civil War, I think it's easy to sort of not think about Jews or maybe to know about, you know, just a few, a few random stories. But how did the Jews of the South relate to the Jews of the North before and during the Civil War? Sure. So, I mean, there's different evidence of this. I mean, in a place like Charleston, which had a long-standing Jewish community that was fairly well established, and here's a fact that will blow people's minds: in 1820, more Jews lived in Charleston, South Carolina, than lived in New York City. 
1820, wow. by 1830, that changed and it never came back. So, so in places like Charleston, you had Jewish communities that where many of his residents had been born there. They'd been raised as Southerners, as white Southerners. Um, and so they acted like other white Southerners. So you've got plenty of examples of Southern Jews who were sincere, faithful defenders of the Confederacy, both in terms of taking up arms and serving in the military, and also, and you know, there are rabbis who are sermonizing that the, that the cause of the Confederacy was moral and just. You also have, you know, newly arriving Jewish immigrants coming from Central Europe who are settling, who are not well established. They, you know, maybe don't own, you know, well, you know, don't own land, don't own slaves who are perhaps less attached to it. So you had kind of the gamut. Um, Once the Civil War is over, Jews seem to kind of get over it. Jews in the South seem to get over it fairly quickly. So you don't have the sort of you know, um, sense of of loss and tragedy that much of the white South felt after the Civil War. You know, Jews kind of picked back up and kind of kept going. So Jews owned slaves is what you're saying. Sure. And so so the the basic thing to understand about um, Jews in the South and slavery is that there was not a distinctly Jewish response to slavery. Um, Jews in the South that were economically established, that had the means to acquire slaves, generally did. Um, Those that didn't, did not. So it wasn't sort of a moral question. So Jews owned slaves in a place like Charleston at about the same rate as non-Jews. They tended not to own plantations. They tended to live in cities, so these were servants. Um, But, you know, it's important to understand that the kind of theological debates over slavery that played out in the Christian church also played out within Judaism. Um, and you have rabbis from the North, from New York, in fact, who argued that, you know, according to the Torah, slavery is allowed. There's lots of rules about slavery um, sort of in the Torah. So it was a source of theological debate in the Jewish world as it was in the Christian world. So could you tell us about a few, you know, specific pockets of of Jewish communities that are particularly interesting or have, you know, really, really rich, rich histories? Well, I mean, of course, I'd say all of them. But one that really stood out to me, and we can debate whether this is the South, um, is the town of Laredo, Texas, which is right on the Mexico border. And what happened was um, once immigration restriction was passed in America in 1924, it became much harder for Jews in Europe to get into America. So a lot of them would come into Mexico and they would kind of work their way up and a lot of them would cross the border. Back then the border was much easier to cross than it is today. Um, And they settled in places like Laredo. So you have this really unique um, Jewish community in Laredo that has a lot of Mexican heritage. Um, I met with a guy um, who had a kind of a heavy kind of Yiddish inflected um, kind of Spanish accent and yet Texas accent. It was really interesting. Um, um, and I, I met with a woman whose um, father owned a store that was called House of Raul and he was named Raul, but actually it was a, a version of Israel. So they changed his name Israel to kind of Raul to fit in. But what was important was that that border was sort of insignificant. So folks would live on one side and own businesses in the other, 
and cross the border every day. Uh, that, of course, has changed, but, uh, but a really unique Jewish community that I sort of enjoyed visiting. And of course, Bentonville, Arkansas is another one. You know, the, the kind of general trend in Southern Jewish life is small town communities are shrinking and dying, and the big cities are growing. So Atlanta is burgeoning. It's got, you know, well over 100,000 Jews and all this. Bentonville is the exception. So it's the small town of Northwest Arkansas that has seen in the last 20 years a newly created Jewish community, um, a newly created synagogue. And the reason for that is because it's the corporate home of Walmart. So Jews who work for Walmart or work for Walmart suppliers are moving to the small Arkansas town and they have created a fledgling Jewish community. It's like the modern dry goods store. Well, it's sort of ironic, of course, right? Because a lot of those dry goods stores have been put out of business by the large retail chains. So, so to me, it's sort of the exception that proves the rule and that Jews have moved out of retail trade for the most part, especially in small towns, because retail trade has kind of declined. And so it's the rise of big box stores. So I was driving through the Mississippi Delta last night and, you know, past the Walmart on the outskirts of a town. And if you go to that downtown square, you can see a lot of empty storefronts. Wow. And so when these communities were, were started and over the years, was there a lot of, you know, interaction? There's some places where you sort of refer to like Jewish ghettos where Jew, the Jews sort of like all bought land yeah. in one area and lived sort of amongst themselves. How much of how much of like a mixing of culture was there between Jews? So and, when I moved and, to Jackson in 2002, there was um, my backyard neighbor was Jewish. And around the corner, there was a guy, a family who was Jewish. So we joked that we were the Lower East Side of Jackson, you know, three <laughs> Jews in like a you know mile radius. So, yeah, I mean, um, in larger cities, you had distinctly Jewish neighborhoods, places like Houston, places like Atlanta, of course, Memphis. But in small towns, there simply were no Jews to do that. And so Jews had to kind of, you know, mix into the community much more quickly. And so, you know, I always tell people, if you're opening a store in Yazoo City, Mississippi in 1910, um, you better learn how to speak English pretty quickly because all your customers are going to be speaking English. So that sort of Yiddish culture that really flourished in the large cities of the Northeast, you know, uh, was much less the case um, um, in the South. Now, it did exist for sure, but it tended to be in the larger cities and not in the smaller towns. And so what about a place like Dothan, Alabama, where we sort of have been reading news reports every few years that they're like paying young Jewish families to come settle there? Is that common? Uh, no, Dothan was the pioneer in this. Um, but you had someone um, with deep pockets who thought, you know, we are a shrinking congregation. We need families to move here. And the genius of the idea is that, you know, I mean, you don't need to bring in 100 families. If you bring in five families, um, that will ensure at least a generation um, of that Jewish community continuing. You know, one of the good barometers of the health of a Jewish community is the size of its religious school. Are there kids? And so I know that that program has been very successful in Dothan in terms of, you know, keeping, keeping young people there, keeping that religious school going. You know, is it a feasible model? You know, um, um, I'm not sure, but it's certainly one that's gotten a lot of attention. So what are some other cities or towns who could use something like that? Like, let's say like some big funder is going to come and say, you know, look, I'm going to pay for people to go to five different places. What are those five places that are like most in need of a revitalized, you know, a good religious school? I mean, I always say that you can tell as a city, as a community flourishes, um, so will its Jewish communities. So if economically, for example, I was talking about the Mississippi Delta, um, it was once the center of the Jewish community in Mississippi. You had towns, um, Jews settled in towns throughout the region. They had multiple synagogues in multiple towns. Um, 
And that has just simply, you know, as the Delta has declined um, economically for a host of reasons, um, as the retailing trade has changed, I mean, you know, parents who live in Mississippi, Jewish parents, raise their kids almost expecting them to go somewhere else. I mean, we work hard to to give our children a a um, a sort of Jewish experience. So my kids go to a Jewish summer camp in Utica, Mississippi. That's been profoundly um, important to them. And the thought is that, you know, when they go away to college, when they're done, um, there's a good chance they're not coming back. So, you know, we don't raise our children to stay um, in a lot of ways. So you're saying which five towns could use Jews? Well, I mean, all of them, but then, you know, what's drawing them there? Um, I know, for example, that um, several Southern University towns have made a special effort to attract Jews. So, for example, at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, they built a new synagogue on campus. Um, and, the, um, and the university essentially gave them the land to do it. Wow. And the idea was that if we can make Jews feel more welcome here, we can attract better faculty, we can attract better students. So those college towns are kind of the interesting examples of small towns that have growing Jewish communities. So Auburn, Alabama has a new congregation or relatively new congregation. Um, I've been, you know, uh, keeping my fingers crossed for Oxford, Mississippi. They're kind of, you know, getting to that point where they could kind of organize. And so, you know, um, again, it's like the places that are attracting people are attracting Jews. So let's say I'm taking a road trip to do a Jewish tour of the South. Like what are some, what are, what are the big stops? What are some places I shouldn't miss? Where should I be going? Well, Jewish road trip is a good question because I just planned one for my college Yiddish teacher. So um, I got my graduate degree at the University of Texas um, and my Yiddish professor, it's a Gottesman, emailed me um, and said they were driving to Mississippi. What should they see? So I set them up, right? So I sent them to Greenwood, Mississippi, which has a very small but very dedicated Jewish community that in fact a congregation that had been founded as Orthodox and still identifies as traditional and uh, a really fascinating place. Um, I sent them to Indianola, um, where the mayor, Steve Rosenthal, um, um, is Jewish and was the first mayoral candidate since the Voting Rights Act to win every precinct in Indianola. Now, what does that mean? It means he won both white and black votes, which was, you know, very extraordinary. Um, I sent them up to Clarksdale, Mississippi, because of the blues history, but also there was a former congregation there and there's a historic cemetery. So, you know, basically, um, you know, I used to joke that if I was driving um, and my car broke down, I knew Jews everywhere. It actually came in handy once. I was uh, driving outside Lafayette, Louisiana, and our car broke down. And I had had dinner at the president of the congregation's house like four years earlier. So I called her out of the blue and her husband came and helped helped us. It's like triple A, but like for Jews only. Triple A, right. Triple J. <laughs> Stuart Rockoff, thank you so much. And we will hopefully get down to, to visit you in Jackson soon. Great. Thanks a lot, Stephanie. Thanks. We are on the line with Sammy Potter. He was the only Jewish kid in his high school in Yarmouth, Maine. And um, okay, were you the only Jewish kid in your class or your school? Um, as far as I know, I was the only Jewish kid in my class. I very well may have been the uh, only Jewish kid in my school, but 
there's definitely not a Jewish community by any means, so I, I probably wouldn't even know if there was other other Jewish uh, students in my school. You guys don't do like the secret signal to each other. <laughs> <laughs> we don't. We don't have. We don't have the nod or, or anything like that. No. When you were a senior, did you see like a freshman with really dark curly hair, and you walked by him and kind of like like gazed at him in the then hall? Thinking, like, shalom. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I just yell shalom in the hallway and see who looks up. So you're you're. Starting at Stanford in the fall, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Muscle tub. That's yeah. a nice, nice Thank one. Thank you very much. So tell us, what's what, what's it like? You know, you, you're here, you're celebrating holidays. No one else is celebrating. You have all these stories and traditions no one else gets. Does it feel lonely or are you kind of like the cool exotic one? Like, hey, man, it's Hanukkah. Let me like drop some knowledge in you. What, what's it like? Um, I'd say it's a mixture of, of both. I definitely have taken some pride in, uh, in sharing with my friends uh, whenever I'm, I'm celebrating a, a holiday that they are, are treating as, as any other day. Um, at the same time, though, it is, it is something that, that's difficult. You know, anytime, especially as a, as a child, I feel like, uh, you know, naturally we are pack animals and, and our natural in- instinct, especially, you know, as children in elementary school and as middle school is to uh, is to fit in and want to want to be like others, and you know to have something that was immediately different uh, about me um, just because of uh, you know uh, how I was how I was born wasn't uh, wasn't something that was always appealing to me. Um, but at the same time, having something that was immediately different and that I couldn't uh, couldn't change uh, over time kind of made me more comfortable with uh, with being different. Uh, so I, I guess it it, it ended up uh, even socially being uh, more or less uh, a positive thing in my life uh, because I, I felt more comfortable doing things that weren't. Uh, that were sort of against the grain, um, um, just just because uh, in the beginning, you know, there was there was really no choice. Although, really, um, amazingly, you could have being the only Jew, you could have made up whatever you wanted. I mean, it's like, like literally, like the Book of Mormon is the fast of Megatron, where we all <laughs> take <laughs> off our clothes and I sing hymns. Not be entrusted like, with, yeah. That's like, wait, what is it? The Book of Mormon. He changes it to like the Book of whatever his name is because he's <laughs> right, like a missionary yeah. and <laughs> do whatever you want. Okay, so tell us a little bit about uh, about Yarmouth, Maine. Um, you know, about how big is it? What's the, what's the what's the general vibe there? What, what what what's the big industry? How did your family get there? Tell us Yarmouth. Yeah, sure. Um, so Yarmouth is. Uh, I feel like I'm repeating one of my college essays right now. Um, <laughs> Why okay. Stanford? We don't know that. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just kidding. Um, uh, so Yarmouth is kind of a, a little uh, sort of a sleepy uh, seaside New England town. Um, very homogeneous. Um, you know, Maine itself as a whole is is the most homogeneous state in the country. Um, uh, and homogeneously uh, white, that is. Uh, in Maine, I'm going to tell uh, South very... Dakota you said that, pal. Yeah. Oh yeah, we uh, we have a, a little competition with them every year. I think I think we surpassed them sometime in the in the 90s, and uh, we haven't looked back since. <laughs> yeah, but it's uh, it's definitely homogeneous in both its uh, in both its population and then also um, in its religious practice. So it's it's uh, very much a um, a Christian town with uh, folks pretty regularly going to going to church on Sunday. Um, and uh, you know that kind of plays into into the the culture of the town. It's it's I'd say it is is welcoming in theory to um, to other families, but uh, so much of the community is built around um, you know uh, not necessarily the religion itself, but the the practices that come with it. Um, so it is uh, you know I have a few other friends who are um, who who are, are, are minorities, and uh, you know I, I think for them it has uh, it has it has been pretty difficult to um, to fit in. Um, not because people are necessarily uh, explicitly um, uh, heinous them, but just just because there is uh, something uh, very difficult about you know, for example, my friend who is the only African American in our grade, um, and uh, it, it, because of that, I think I think it puts people in sort of a, a difficult position. And you know, I honestly think that 
our our, our town culture is somewhat worse off because of uh, because of how homogeneous it is. And so, is there something about the town culture? That you guys just didn't partake in because you were Jewish, like, oh, everyone goes to the lobster shack after church, but we're gonna sit that one out, something like that. Um, you know, it was interesting because on Sundays when I was growing up, I would uh, I would go to Hebrew school, um, and uh, most of my friends would go go to church, and then uh, most of my friends after that would go uh, go to the park and uh, participate in like town soccer games. Um, and I, I think that sort of made me feel left out when I was uh, honestly made me feel pretty left out when I was in elementary school because, you know, I was still still in Hebrew school. Where's the nearest Hebrew school? Uh, it's like f- 45 minutes to an hour away, depending on traffic. And that's, oh. was that your synagogue? Uh, yeah. So what town was that in? Uh, South Portland. You have to take a boat. <laughs> <laughs> so do you feel like when you, you know, I know we have to let you go, but do you feel like when you leave for college, like you don't want to go back? Are you like sort of like ready to get the hell out of there? And also, like, what do you want Jew- other Jews to know about, you know, Jews who might live in more, pop- you know, more, more Jewish populated areas who take for granted sort of like these ideas of Jewish community and Jewish solidarity? Like, what, what, what would you say to that? Yeah, those are two really good questions. So to the first one, I would say, um, I think you asked, do I, wa- do I want to leave or do I want to come back? Um, I absolutely uh, want to come back. I, I um, you know, even outside of being Jewish, um, Maine is the you know just despite some of the difficulties maine is the place in the world that i think has the most raw potential to be uh an amazing society and an amazing place for um for all types of people i think there's so much potential that has been untapped here um and frankly i actually want want to spend the entirety of my life um working to improve maine and hopefully make it a welcoming place for um for all people and then uh secondly i think that uh what i'd like uh what i'd like Jews in especially like urban areas in the united states uh one of the one of the stigmas that comes from being a jew uh within the jewish community in in a rural place like um like maine is that we um i think there's an assumption that we're much more uh you know secular and uh, and not engaging in judaism as uh uh, as as Jews in in urban areas, and you know that is true in a lot of cases. And I I definitely I think am more secular as a result of um, of living in a, a pretty rural suburban area. Um, but at the same time, I really think there is a lot of value uh, uh, to Jews living in um, uh, Jews living in areas where where there is not as many Jews. Yeah. I'm, I'm ready to but, elect you governor. Yeah, I Sammy, especially a gap year from Sammy Stanford. Potter 2036. Yeah, just right? go be governor for a couple of years. Especially and then given who their governor is. I mean, Maine has the craziest. Oh they have Don't Paul. Even get me Paul Lafarge is that his name? He is literally the worst governor in the country. I, I don't know. So I want this kid. We want this kid. Sammy Potter. Final question for you. What was the family name before you changed it to the very Maine appropriate Potter? Um, my so my my dad's name actually is uh, is Potter, but my mom's maiden name is Zarin. Oh, okay. So dad so dad dad's an old Maine Gentile. My dad is uh, an Episcopal from Concord, New Hampshire, actually. Love it. Love yep. it. Because Potter yep. is like, if I was going to pick a name yeah. for a kid from Maine, it might be it might be Potter. Uh, right. Sam- Sounds like we've been here forever, doesn't it? It really Samuel Potter, I think he was like the minister of First Church on the Green. It's actually Shmuel. Shmuel. I'm pretty sure he came over on the Mayflower. Shmuley Potter, thank you so much for being one of our Jews of the week. And uh, Potter for Governor 20. And good luck at Stanford. Yeah, yeah. good luck at Stanford. Stay in touch. Well, thank you guys so much for having me, and uh, I really appreciate what you do. All right, uh, likewise. Take care. All right, have a good one. You don't have to stay in the shape that you're in. The potter wants to put you back together again. Oh, the potter wants to put you back together again. 
We are on the line with Jamila Bukai. She is a journalist living in New York, and she moved from San Antonio from Mexico City when she was eight years old. Welcome. Thank you. To the show, not to um, America, obviously. Not to America. <laughs> yeah. Good um, thing so I've been here for a while. So your family is Syrian, but when did your family get from Syria to Mexico? So it's my dad's family, Syrian, and the way the communities are broken up in Mexico you belong officially to the community of your dad. So even though my mom's Ashkenaz, I was completely enmeshed with the Syrians. So what are the different communities in Mexico? So was your mother's family there as well? Yeah, my mom's family was there. Um, My mom spent a lot of her childhood in the U.S., but her family was in Mexico. Um, There are currently four communities. They're divided along kind of ethnic lines, I guess, is the closest word for it. So there's one community of Syrian Jews from Damascus, and those are the Shamis, which just means from Damascus. Um, and there's the Syrian Jews from Aleppo, which are the Halevis. And then there's the Sephardi community, which is not the way we define it in the U.S. is just everything that's Ashkenaz, not Ashkenaz, it's Sephardi in Mexico, Sephardi Jews um, are descended from people who spoke Ladino. Mostly uh, the ones in Mexico came from Greece and Turkey, where I guess they were post-Spanish expulsion. And then there's the Ashkenaz, uh, Kihila. And that just includes all European Jews. Although at one point there were different Ashkenaz communities. There were one, there was one for Hungarian Jews, one for French and German. Yeah, I I was about to say, I love how, like, Syria gets, like, two different communities for two different cities, and the whole continent of Europe is just like, you guys go here. Yeah, it it, uh, was a process of smooshing together. You all look the same to me, you Ashkenazi Jews. (laughs) So what languages did you grow up speaking? Um, I grew up speaking Spanish, but I started learning Hebrew and, like, pre-K. There was... Arabic interspersed a lot in our Spanish, which I didn't realize was not just part of Spanish until I moved to the U.S. Then I met people who spoke Spanish and they didn't understand some of my vocabulary. And I was like, oh, huh. I guess this is not fully Spanish. And um, I knew some Yiddishisms, not really very much at all, but that's like from my mom's family. And then once I moved to Texas, I started learning English. So, Jamila, when you got to Texas, you were eight years old, right? To San Antonio? Yeah. And I don't know how well you remember that. I don't remember eight years old very well. But, you know, what was the biggest surprise uh, or the biggest change when you moved from Mexico to the United States? Um, The biggest change by far was not having family around. I mean, I had my sisters and my parents. And so I guess by a lot of American standards, I had my nuclear family and that was having family around. But... Growing up in Mexico City, I had three of my great-grandmothers within walking distance. I had my grandparents, who I saw every day. I had a lot of cousins, aunts, uncles, great-aunts, great-uncles, all within the same neighborhood of a few blocks. We would go eat at my grandma's house every week, twice a week, on Fridays and Sundays. We would have Shabbat with my grandparents, play with my cousins, and... That's that was that was not unique to my family. That's just like part and parcel of growing up Jewish in Mexico City is that you have a 
huge extended family around you. Um, and we didn't have that in the U.S. So that was just weird and difficult to adapt to. So your Jewish community in the U.S., in San Antonio, what was that like? Was it largely Syrian Mexican Jews? Was it just Jews from Texas? Um, it was mostly Ashkenazi Jews from Texas. I mean, there is definitely diversity in the community in San Antonio. There's, uh, there were a few families from South Africa, a lot of Israeli families, a couple of other Mexican families. And I guess maybe my parents gravitated towards them. Um fellow immigrants. And in terms of our community, uh, my parents put my sisters and I in the only Jewish school in San Antonio, which has since kind of closed down or it's become a charter Hebrew school. So it's lost the religious element of it. Um, But they put us in the school and that was how we started having community. Our school friends, the parents of our school friends, and my parents also... Um, became parts of the Orthodox congregation, like the one Orthodox synagogue. There's also a Chabad synagogue, but it was the not Chabad Orthodox synagogue um, because that was the closest to what our synagogue in Mexico. Is that Ezra, your little baby? Yeah, that hey, is. Ezra. So Jamila, here's here's a question. When, when you first start to kind of like become enmeshed with the local community here, what, what strikes you as different, not just, you know, different ways of, of living, but like when you start interacting with American Jews, how do they seem to you different than, than Mexican Jews? Well, I think one of the biggest things was the difference between a congregation and a community. Like we were affiliated with our synagogue and sure there were fundraisers and events, but it was primarily like a faith-based community. Whereas in Mexico, like whatever community you belong to absorbs and fills in every part of your life. There's It's a real mishpocha. Yeah, there are ambulances organized by it. Um, there are scholarships. There are schools that are run by the community. There are just all sorts of institutions that regulate your life for better or worse. Sometimes that can be suffocating. I think as a child, it wasn't quite as present in my mind. Um, but they absorb all of you. And in in Texas, that was just, that was not the case. Like synagogue was the place where we went on Shabbat to pray and on some of the holidays. We still went to Mexico for most high holidays. The other thing that struck me as so different was there's just, there is not really a reform movement in Mexico at all. There's a little bit of conservative. Um, It was a culture shock for me. And I don't know if that's so much the American part or just the different practice, maybe like, if I'd grown up in Crown Heights and I went to like a reform synagogue, I would have had the same reaction. And so you're actually you're living in Great Neck right now, which is on Long Island, which is where I grew up. And that's like one of the big bastions of per- the Persian community, the Iranian Jews who came over in 79. There's, you know, there's the, there's L.A. and then there's Great Neck. So and your husband's Persian, right? Yeah. So that's been it's been nice because there are some differences like. During Passover, we stayed here and my parents came over because they're just now they just go wherever their grandchild is. Um, so As they we, should. Yeah. So we were with my in-laws and during Dayenu, they took out leeks, everyone at the Seder and started whipping each other with the leeks. And my parents and sisters and I yes. just looked at each other like, what is going on? But, <laughs> but other than that, like the services are pretty similar. A lot of the 
extended family networks, the type of food, just it's like a very similar culture. So it's been pretty easy adaptation, barring the linguistic barriers, because I do not know Farsi. Yeah, I feel like everyone (laughs) speaks Farsi when they don't want you to hear. Yeah, or the Shabbat table, which is really like I need to step up my Farsi game. I don't know if I'm going to tell them. Once I understand it, maybe I'll just keep that to myself. So, so Jamila, what, like, when we think about Syrian food and we think about Mexican food, those are different. But, like, what are some of the ways in which you're, you grew up with just, like, a fusion of the two? Uh, my grandma was an amazing cook. And one of the things that she would make in mass are kibbeh, which is just a staple of Syrian cooking. They're kind of like meatballs, but it's a disservice to call them that as they're much more complex. And along with being able to dip them in hummus or trina, we would also eat them with guacamole, which I think oh was even Lord. better. <laughs> Sounds like the best thing ever. As, as we say in Yiddish, me gusta mucho. <laughs> <laughs> or Passover uh, tacos with uh, kosher tortillas, if you can eat kidney Oh, I corn tortillas. Oh, and I should say, Ooh. Jamila, that my family, we're vegetarians, and so we we obviously eat kidney during Passover. There'd be nothing left to eat, and that sounds extraordinary. Jamila Bukai, a journalist living in New York by way of San Antonio, by way of Mexico City, thank you for being on Unorthodox. Thank you, guys. Have a good day. Bye. So I sat down with Tirza Firestone, uh, who is from Boulder, Colorado, and one of the founding members of the Jewish Renewal Movement, which is a fascinating, fascinating development in Jewish spiritual life. Jewish Renewal is a movement, a Jewish movement that was founded by Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi in the late 1950s, early 60s, to reinvigorate a generation of Jews who had been, in a sense, disenfranchised or disinterested, had gone by the wayside, either to India to uh, seek other spiritual forms and practices, or dropping out into the secular world. It came into being first as a healing to a very traumatized generation uh, who were born in post-Holocaust era and uh, the mysticism had died, the sort of the deep heart had died because there was a dissociation that had gone on, this horrendous catastrophe that had happened. And nobody was dealing with it yet in the 50s and 60s. It was just, people were just starting to wake up to what had happened to us. So there was a waking up that happened in those gener- in those decades. And so Jewish Renewal came as a healing bomb It is sometimes frowned upon uh, by less than generous souls as a kind of modern day uh, relative of the kind of, you know, Madonna, Kabbalah, trendy. Uh, Tell me, you know, if if you were to meet one of these skeptics, of which, by the way, as I will soon reveal, I'm absolutely not one, uh, what... What would you say? I mean, it's easy to mistake the substance for for the for yeah. the joyous, effervescent outside. I think there is a Jewish light stereotype, L I T E, which really irks me because personally, it, it really depends on the community and on the rabbi who's leading. If there's intellectual gravitas and there's really people studying, they're studying whatever it is, Talmud or Hasidic. Uh, texts, 
uh, perushim, then that that stereotype evaporates right away. Um, the davening is given to a lot of song, a lot of music. Sometimes you will have, and maybe this is perhaps some of the stereotype, maybe not all six chapters of of Tehillim, of Psalms, are are read word for word on, on Kabbalat Shabbat. Uh, but you, there might be one phrase that's chanted again and again and again until the energy in the room shifts and there really is a mo- you're ready for L'Chadudim. Until, as, as they say in the Mishnah, until the chakras open. <laughs> exactly. A lot of Jewish renal rabbis come from from Orthodox backgrounds. And so we know the... We know the scales. <laughs> we play the scales very well. We know the kind of the template, the matbea of davening, of, of Jewish prayer, and then we get to riff. Uh, so there's, you, we make jazz out of it. Uh, it doesn't work so well if you don't have that grounding. So that's, that's for one thing. So I come from a very deep and steeped yeshiva background from the Midwest. Um, and uh, we're women... My family in Israel still, they just shake their heads and laugh because a woman rabbi is still just completely ridiculous to them. Um, but what's anomalous about my story is that I went so far away from Yiddishkeit that I, and was really disaffected uh, and was really running the other direction. I married a non-Jew who was actually a devout Christian. And it was through that intermarriage and I was by the way, disenfranchised. I was disowned by my my Orthodox family. It was through that relationship that I started seeking again because here was a person who was very devout Christian and he knew all about Buber and he knew all about he knew more about mysticism, Jewish mysticism than I did. So I start, slowly started to come back, be interested in my own birth religion, paradoxically. And then I met Reb Zalman and Reb Zalman said, It's okay. It's okay that you're intermarried. You still belong. And that was a tremendous healing because I had been, like as I said, disowned by my family and that I had a place that I could be included back again was tremendous for me. And it was through that that I started to study with his movement and ultimately enter the seminary. And and by the way, I'm no longer married to that same man, but we're friends and I understand Hashem's God's circuitous ways of uh, bringing people back. I think Jewish renewal is all about keruv. Ultimately, it's really about bringing people back in a very, very broad and wide tent. Um, why Boulder? <laughs> it's a really funny story. I moved out to Boulder in my disenfranchised years when I was running away from Yiddishkeit. I was very young and was. Uh, going as far away from anything Jewish that I could. And that was involved in all kinds of, all kinds of things. And at a certain age, probably around, I turned 30 and was getting serious in a marriage and became pregnant. And I I realized that, uh, that all my meditation cronies under their names of Shanti yeah. Ram Das was Louis Ginsburg from the Bronx. It is well known that the Buddhist community in America, even the most conservative uh, Buddhists uh, in America, are very large percentage Jewish. So there were Jews that came out of the woodwork when Reb Zalman started to give his lectures and teachings. 
And so is it accurate to describe the scene as a host of, this was what years, more or less? Uh, Rob Salman came in to Boulder, I believe it was in 1995, 96. 95, 96. Mm -hmm. And so is it fair to say that these are kind of uh, disenfranchised Jews having dabbled in Buddhism and a bunch of other traditions, escaped to Boulder to not be in the shtetls of New York and Philadelphia and Los Angeles or or wherever Jews used to congregate and then, uh, you know, found this, uh, this, this spiritual guide? Did it take Boulder to achieve that? I mean, was it the sense of kind of freedom that could happen only outside of traditional confines of Jewish congregations? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I think it, it was, there was a, an element of freedom that was part of the equation that made it all okay. So you've, you've traveled you know, far and wide. You've gone to you know, many shows, uh, Renewal and others. Uh, what's special about Boulder? What's the Boulder spirit? Boulder is infused with gorgeous environmental uh, avira. There is a, a sense of uh, these looming flat irons, beautiful jutting, very angular mountains that stick up. You can see it from almost any spot in Boulder. And um, it calls to people who love nature, who care about nature, environmentalists, uh, rock climbers, marathon runners, cyclists, yogis, (laughs) um, because there is such a beautiful environmental frame. Many times, if the weather permits, we daven out of doors and we go outside to do our meditations or we have Kabbalah Shabbat in the park. We rarely do that on Amsterdam and 105th (laughs) Street. Right. (laughs) Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our journey across America wouldn't be complete without a stop in your living room. We put a call out for listeners to tell us about their hometowns and communities, and here's what we got. Hi, I'm Lauren Trexler. I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida, and all my life, whenever I go somewhere else, people are like, they're Jews in Tallahassee. I'm like, they're a lot more than you think. Granted, most of them are my relatives. Um, my, I think, great-great-grandparents, them and their uh, contemporaries just founded the temple there. My family has been there forever. My mom used to joke that she couldn't date anybody in Tallahassee because they were all her relatives. But I've lived in a lot of places since Tallahassee including the very, very random place of Casper, Wyoming. And I've lived in a lot of places, and a lot of places that have been a pretty good uh, Jewish community. But um, it was a very eye-opening experience, even being from Tallahassee to Wyoming. And I should add that I ended up going to HUC, and, and now I'm uh, an educator at a synagogue in Akron, Ohio, just outside of Cleveland, which pretty Jewish. But I always say that like, if I hadn't grown up in Tallahassee, Florida, I don't think I would be where I am today because I was super involved with youth group. I went to Jewish summer camp. And I think all the things that made me feel really Jewish growing up was because I felt different and unique. I'm from a place and lived in a lot of places that aren't necessarily quote unquote Jewish. I'm pretty freaking Jewish. I've always carried that with me, and being Jewish in America isn't just being from New York, Chicago, or L.A. Yes, my name is Judy Wolf. I was born and raised in McKeesport, Pennsylvania, a steel town that at one time had seven synagogues that were packed every day, every uh, holiday and Shabbos. And there are nine Jews left in McKeesport. Now, that's pretty sad. There are some more in a suburb close to it. But what's unusual is a documentary was made about called Missing McKeesport. And it's very, very like so many communities in the Midwest that have, we all have memories. We have wonderful, wonderful memories. But they're socioeconomically depressed at this point, and the Jews have left. But we came back together for a reunion, 
and there's so many other communities all over Pennsylvania, all over Illinois, all over Michigan that were Jewish communities and are no longer. Up next, we're heading to Tulsa to get a look at a vibrant Jewish community in the heart of America. We talk with Rabbi Mark Fitzerman and his kids, Micah Fitzerman Blue and Nina Fitzerman Blue. Have a listen. Okay. Hi, my name is Mark Fitzerman. I'm one of the rabbis at Congregation B'nai Moon in Tulsa, Oklahoma. My name is Micah Fitzerman Blue. Uh, I live in Los Angeles, California. I work as a screenwriter and I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hi, my name is Nina Fitzerman Blue. I am a Tulsa native. Uh, I am the younger child of Rabbi Mark Boone Fitzerman of Congregation B'nai Amuna and a social worker named Alice Blue. My older brother is Micah Fitzerman Blue, and we are Tulsa committed and loving. <laughs> I don't know if that was good. <laughs> Tulsa is like the idealized mid-sized American city. Growing up in Tulsa, it had, you know, one of every good thing. So um, it had the one place I uh, I like to go you know, shop for music. It had the one good bookstore. It had uh, sort of one of each. And of course, that's now changed. It's expanded mightily um, since I left. Um, I'd love for people to come by the synagogue, but there's an active, this will sound so minor, but it's so important to me an active coffee house culture in Tulsa. So just before this interview, I came from one of my favorites, Double Shot. There are a million people there. I have many of the meetings that used to take place in my office in places like that. I like the pedestrianization of life in Tulsa. I can walk there. Other people walk there. It feels like a, a, a place quite different from the place I came to. And it's always been a place I loved growing up, and it's always been a place that I secretly really wanted to come back to. And I was able to convince my husband and my husband's family to come back here to raise our daughter. So it was very thrilling to be able to come home again. When Nina and Dan decided to move back to Tulsa, it did not surprise me in the least. Uh, Nina is, uh, was born in Tulsa. I was born in Kansas City, so uh, her roots go even deeper. Uh, how she pronounces certain words remind me of that every time she says uh, spoon as opposed to spoon. And my dad used to, uh, from the front scene of the from the front seat of the Volvo, he would say spoon, and Nina would call back spoon, and my dad would say spoon, and Nina would say spoon. Everyone's first question, are there Jews in Tulsa? At the height of Jewish population in Tulsa, there might have been 3,500 Jews in this community. And my guess at this point is that we're at about the 2,000 person mark. The, the numbers, though small, don't really give you a sense of what it's like to live in this community. I've always felt a very strong connection to Tulsa. I loved growing up here. I loved being part of a very tight-knit Jewish and liberal community. And I found, you know, having gone other places, 
um, since my adolescence that that's not always the case to have such a, a strong, tight-knit community of both um, Jews and like-minded political community members. I think people have the idea that this is a red state bastion. And the truth is that there are lots of progressive people in Tulsa and Oklahoma City and other centers in the state. We have the seventh, I think that's the number, the seventh largest LGBTQ center in the country. The city is very hospitable when it comes to differentness of any kind. And there's a real appetite for progressive politics and progressive urban planning. I think something that's really unique about the Tulsa Jewish community is that it participates so actively in the larger Tulsa community um, and does a lot and, and plays a big part in, you know, helping those who are less fortunate and making sure that there's a strong you know, Oklahoma is an extremely red state, and there is a strong contingent of activists. And I'm proud to say a lot of that activism comes through and with huge participation from the Jewish community in Tulsa. And I think that that's definitely unique. I think in bigger cities, there's often an impulse to serve our own community as Jews. And I think that Tulsa is pretty unique that it's more outward facing. People imagine this as a forgotten provincial town. I, I find these two very loving, but also very sophisticated. They're well traveled. They're well educated. I learn a lot from them, and uh, and I feel supported in some of the interesting things that I think uh, a congregation can accomplish. They also have a flexible idea of what rabbis can do and who rabbis are. I write a lot on, I published a book called The First Men's Guide to Ironing in one slice of my career in Tulsa, and that seemed to bring pleasure to the congregation as opposed to disapproval or discomfort. The congregation did me the favor, did our family the favor of allowing us to raise our kids in the way we thought best without some of the some of the strictures that fall on rabbis in other, maybe more traditional communities. I, I like to think of my kids as free-thinking Jews who are not bound by the commitments that I made for myself, but who are very connected to Jewish life and are marking out their own path. One of the, the most interesting things, and the thing that was so meaningful for me as a Jewish child in Tulsa, was, you know, being one of the few. For the most part, my friends were not Jewish because the Jewish community is small and mighty, but small. Um, so I was often a Jewish representative in, in whatever situation I was in. So I, was, I, you know, I had to be really knowledgeable about the holidays and what Jewish thought was. Um, so I, I was always kind of felt like I was a representative of Judaism. Um, and I felt like that was a unique and pretty powerful role as a, as a young kid. I mean, this is part of being feeling like a minority. There were multiple experiences where well-meaning other young people told me that I was going to hell because I didn't believe in Jesus. And then they would quickly follow with, but I'll pray for you, which I always felt was very nice of them. <laughs> you know, like they clearly liked me or else they wouldn't pray for me. I mean, they could have just left me in hell. 
I think of Tulsa as a bit of a whetstone. Um, I felt myself different from Tulsa a lot growing up, and I felt like that friction uh, between me and Tulsa made me sharper. Growing up in Tulsa and feeling like you are, you're not what everyone else is, um, it forces you to be an observer. It, it teaches you early that you're um, uh, a little on the outside, and you begin to read the social cues and read the codes and um, unpack what is unsaid um, in a way that, uh, I don't know, that I, I feel like is, is part of what I do all the time as a writer, which is try to step outside people's experiences, see them, and then climb back in and, and write them truthfully. That was Rabbi Mark Fitzerman of Tulsa and his kids, Micah Fitzerman Blue and Nina Fitzerman Blue. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us at 914-570-4869. Get your unorthodox shirts, mugs, and stickers at bit.ly.com slash unorthoshirt. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Shira Talishkin. It is edited by Noah Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Thanks to everyone who participated in our special Jews Across America episode. We recorded this at Argo Studios, which will never give up its seat on the Supreme Court, and also at Crosstown Studios, which is packing up and moving to France. We're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends, and happy birthday, America.